to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about how the U.S. Supreme Court has now blocked uh, Biden's eviction moratorium, which means that evictions will be allowed to resume across the country. Also going to be touching on uh, uh, the recent suicide bombings at the Kabul airport in Afghanistan. And it's Friday, which means we'll be having our segment, The Red Spin Report, where we talk politics, sports and struggle. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your call. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. To those who carried out this attack, we will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. This is what President Joe Biden said in response to the suicide bombing at the Kabul airport yesterday that resulted in 90 Afghans killed, 150 wounded, and 13 U.S. servicemen killed and 18 wounded. And I intentionally put the number of the Afghan dead and injured first because you know that the U.S. media hasn't done that, won't do that, because it's clear that the lives of the Afghan people aren't as important as those of the U.S. servicemen and never have been. If they were, the U.S. military wouldn't have been in Afghanistan in the first place. Biden struggled to respond to the attack, emotional at moments, except for when he made his comments about typical American retribution. And it is typically American what Biden said, because what U.S. president hasn't vowed retribution when these kinds of things happen that result in U.S. service members being killed. But the same presidents never hesitate to send U.S. service members into someone else's country to destabilize it terrorize the people, topple democratically elected governments if they're leftists. All the talk about retribution for attacks on U.S. service members that can't be forgiven. But where is the honesty about the assault on the sovereignty and self-determination of the people whose lives this country's military and foreign policy have destroyed that result in people in other countries not forgiving or forgetting what the U.S. has done? And about forgiving and forgetting, or not forgiving and forgetting, as it were, it's wild how presidents and politicians and warmongers can openly say they won't forgive or forget an attack that results in the deaths of U.S. service members who, again, shouldn't have been in somebody else's country in the first place. But when we talk about the deaths of our people that are the result of systemic police abuse, medical apartheid, capitalist control of health care, we're not supposed to talk about that. No, not only are we expected to forgive the deliberate and disparate impact of racially biased laws and policies and the inability of working class and poor people to afford the basic necessities of life, including access to decent health care, but we're expected, no, we're demanded to not ever talk about the reasons the cops are allowed to abuse, maim, and kill black brown and poor folks with impunity or the reasons poor folks die because we can't afford cancer treatment or a life-saving transplant or even insulin if we're diabetic or decent treatment and medication for depression or bipolar disorder or substance abuse because we can't afford co-pays or even a decent health insurance plan that provides mental health coverage. Am I deflecting from the deaths of those service members? No, I am not. 
I'm merely pointing out that we're at the point of the spiritual death that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. warned us that this nation was on the path toward in his Beyond Vietnam speech in 1967. In that speech, King said, quote, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. America, the richest and most powerful nation in the world, can well lead the way in this revolution of values. There is nothing except a tragic death wish to prevent us from reordering our priorities so that the pursuit of peace will take precedence over the pursuit of war. Every single year, the U.S. spends hundreds of billions of dollars on war. In 2000, the recorded defense budget was around $320 billion. By 2011, it had more than doubled to $752 billion. Between 2013 and 2018, it dipped down into the $600 billion range each year, but it's been back to over $700 billion a year since 2019. The Biden defense budget for Fiscal year 2022 is requesting $752 billion, but we all know that budget does not include the kinds of covert operations that the CIA and mercenary contractors have and will carry out under the auspices of fighting terrorism that will be continued now in Afghanistan. Every single year, this kind of money is spent on national defense. As of 2019, the U.S. defense budget is 16 percent of government spending. Education, on the other hand, is 2 percent. Transportation and infrastructure, 2 percent. All of the safety net programs like SNAP, low-income housing assistance, unemployment assistance, child care assistance, funding for programs that aid abused and neglected children like foster, like foster care programs are all lumped in together at only 8 percent of federal spending. Only Medicare, Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and the Affordable Care Act collectively account for a larger share of government spending than defense at 25 percent. And three-fifths of that spending goes to Medicare alone, which provides health coverage for those who are age 65 and older or have disabilities. Social Security is also at 23 percent, which is greater than defense spending. But honestly, Social Security shouldn't even count in this discussion because that's workers money that we pay into for our federal retirement benefits. Furthermore, this expenditure for war and death accounts for almost 40 percent of the total expenditure of the 13 countries with the highest expenditure on the military. China, the great emerging adversary that the U.S. is always using now to justify its militarism around the world, and will certainly continue to do that as it continues its military involvement in Afghanistan and elsewhere, only accounts for 13 percent of military spending among all of those countries. When a country spends as much money on war and militarism around the world as the U.S. does, but acts as if spending money to feed, educate, provide health care for, and house its own citizens is just too much. What exactly do people think this country will get for that militarism in return? Thanks from the people whose countries and lives are torn apart by bombs? Is that what people think they're going to get? 635,000 dead from COVID-19 in this country. 
Racist police terrorism continues unabated, violating rights, breaking bodies, taking lives. 11 million people facing eviction because the Supreme Court just sided with greedy landlords who would rather make people homeless and raise rents so that wealthier people can pay that and they can make more money. But we're supposed to rally behind Biden in his exhortation that the U.S. will not forgive nor forget what happened at the Kabul airport. You can't tell me this country isn't realizing the tragic death wish that King warned us about. And I just want to know, when do we make those pay for the senseless destruction, despair, and death that we've endured at the hands of our own government. Follow Luke Mon Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We are now very happy to be joined by Michael Behrman, an organizer with Cancel the Rents, which you can check out at www.cancelthereents.org. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Michael, the U.S. Supreme Court, with its conservative majority, um, has blocked uh, Joe Biden's eviction moratorium, which was uh, supposed to be set to end in early October at the federal level. Uh, They are allowing for evictions to resume. And of course, this comes as I mean, frankly, millions of people uh, face evictions uh, with even more, uh, you know, owing many, owing a whole lot in back rent and things like that. Of course, this is happening within the context of a uh, global pandemic here in the United States. The Delta variant still uh, escalating even as we speak. And I mean, it's almost kind of hard to know what to say. I mean, I don't think certainly it's that surprising that we see this happen. But I think just kind of a harsh reminder that um, something as fundamental uh, as housing is uh, uh, up for debate or a cause of some controversy under uh, the capitalist system here in the U.S. Yeah, I think that's totally correct. Um, You know, we've had kind of a version of a eviction moratorium, you know, since Trump was president. Um, But you know, even those were not super effective in preventing evictions, you know, around the country, some states, um, some judges in some states, you know, used it to prevent evictions and other states, they didn't. Um, I'm originally from Florida, um, early on in the pandemic, when there was an eviction moratorium, people were still being evicted. Judges just didn't really give attention to the eviction moratorium, um, imposed by the CDC. Um, and so this is just kind of another, you know, iteration, um, in the whole saga of, um, the courts and the government, um, who are of course all linked together, um, you know, as the state to, um, basically take the side of, you know, corporate landlords, um, and landlords in general, uh, to basically, uh, you know, kick millions of people onto the streets just because, they can't pay rent during a pandemic, you know, during a time where people lost, you know, their job um, to no fault of their own, but simply because the government chose inaction in the face of, you know, uh, a, a global pandemic. 
Um, so, you know, with the new new uh, Supreme Court decision to to lift the pandemic uh, to lift the eviction moratorium, uh, there'll be, like you said, 11 million people facing immediate eviction um, around the country, and that doesn't include, you know, people who will you know, face eviction in the next coming months, because as we know, the pandemic still hasn't ended and, you know, the unemployment situation is still getting worse. So this isn't a issue that is, you know, going to end soon. Yeah, you know, and the fact that the Supreme Court sided with the corporate landlords and even, you know, the small landlords are are celebrating uh, this Uh, as a victory for them, because their argument has been, you know, they should be able to have the right to kick people who haven't been able to pay their rent out and immediately fill those apartments with people who can pay right now. That just seems so just inconceivably uh, illogical to me, especially since there are funds available to pay those back rents that these landlords claim they want so badly in federal programs and in some state programs, but rather than the landlords uh, helping tenants to get that money, because, I mean, that's where the money would go to the landlords to, you know, cover these uh, back rents. It would just be they their argument is that, no, let's just get rid of these people and get some new renters in. Um, and, and I wonder what your thoughts are about that aspect of this ruling and this entire issue involving uh, uh, the eviction uh, issue in the midst of this pandemic that the landlord's argument has never really seemed to center on wanting to get their rent back, because if they did, they would help their renters get this money that's been made available. Rather, they really just want to kick what they consider, you know, undesirable folks out of their properties and immediately get more people in to what I suspect so that what I suspect they can do is actually raise the rent to make more money. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that aspect of this. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you brought up the, you know, rental assistance that's been provided actually by the uh, Treasury Department um, and in many states you know, during the pandemic, uh, the, the Treasury Department um, and actually Congress in particular um, provided $46 billion for rentals assistance in two different COVID relief packages. Um, and the Treasury Department um, actually announced recently that they um, uh, have only released $5.1 billion of that rentals assistance. Um, so, you know, that's nearly 90% of the money that's, you know, allocated for rental assistance that hasn't been released by the federal government. And that doesn't include uh, the relief that's been provided by state governments, which um, there was an article that came out um, recently. Um, you know, most states um, have only released, you know, below 50% of the rental assistance that they've allocated in their budgets. Um, and this is, you know, partially because, um, you know, most most of these rental assistance programs require the landlords to take a you know major role in the application process. Um, you know, there's lots of requirements. There's many you know uh, 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 stipulations on behalf of the the renter. If they don't meet those certain requirements, they can't receive aid. 
And if the landlord doesn't, you know, fill out their part of the application, they can't receive the aid either. Um, and this was, you know, I think by, by design, you know, they don't have to, you know, make it such a complex process. Um, you know, they could just, you know, cancel the rent, for instance. Um, the $60 you know, million dollars in back rent that's been uh, accumulated over the pandemic, uh, rather they chose to go the route, um, which you know, I think is a pattern, of course, with um, you know, our capitalist government to you know, make it exceptionally hard to receive this aid. Um, and like you said, you know, landlords you know, basically have chosen not to participate in these rental assistance programs simply because you know, it is more profitable for them to um, you know, have people who can't pay rent kicked out, put people in those apartments that, you know, can pay and they can raise the rent, you know, eventually, you know, you know, that's kind of the, the way that these landlords make money. That's kind of their careers in many ways is to continually raise the rent, uh, on these, on these renters. Um, and if, you know, the, the pandemic and the, and the crisis, um, with, you know, unemployment and, and, and the inability to pay rent gets in the way of that, then they're obviously going to put up a fight. And that's what we saw with the Supreme Court and the Alabama Association of Realtors, who was the kind of organization that was um, fighting the, the new uh, CDC moratorium in, in the Supreme Court. Yeah, and there's another aspect of this I wanted to touch on, Michael, and that's the class character of the Supreme Court. Because here we have this body of unelected judges who have a lifetime position. They're there until death or until they decide uh, to retire or to leave, though most of them die in this position. And, you know, there's a quote uh, from a New York banker in 1895 who was giving a toast to the Supreme Court. And he said, quote, I give you, gentlemen, the Supreme Court of the United States Guardian of the dollar, defender of private property, enemy of spoliation, sheet anchor of the republic. And so I feel like that just sort of neatly distills the role that the Supreme Court plays uh, in the United States under this capitalist system. It's precisely what this banker said all that time ago. They guard the dollar. They defend private property. This. I think is really sort of their chief duties as a Supreme Court and not to act as some sort of, you know, neutral arbiter of, uh, you know, justice and upholding the law and things like this, this kind of, you know, way that they're valorized in the popular conscious in the U.S. And so here we have the uh, uh, people who are sworn to protect property doing just that. And so it's not uh, an accident, I think, that we see the Supreme Court maneuvering in this way, Michael, because, I mean, this is precisely the role that they are in place to play under this system. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that quote is really great because it really kind of reveals, you know, the main purpose of the Supreme Court. And maybe, you know, I think it would be unusual to hear something like that nowadays. Um, You know, people think the Supreme Court is kind of this neutral arbiter of justice. Uh, in the country and they somehow, you know, make decisions based off, you know, some neutral kind of moral code or, you know, law. Um, But we know, you know, that 
I mean, essentially off the history, based off the history of the Supreme Court, that they have always taken the side of the property owners, the capitalists, those who, you know, make a profit off of the exploited backs of working and oppressed people. Um, and I think this was just another, you know, iteration in, in that, you know, saga. Uh, the, you know, Supreme Court, like you said, is unelected and can serve for the rest of their lives or until they choose not to. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, it's obvious that they, uh, you know, serve a certain class of people, like we said, just like the other uh, branches of government. But I do kind of want to emphasize that, you know, like other branches of government, they also have the ability to be swayed by, you know, mass struggle and mass movement and by, by the people, by, by working class and oppressed people. Um, you know, their job, just like any other branch of the, uh, you know, capitalist government that we have, is to um, defend the state. And part of that is maintaining kind of an image of, you know, this, maintaining an image that the state is somehow just, you know, otherwise, if it becomes clear that the, uh, you know, state is, totally on the side of the exploiters, you know, people obviously will, you know, revolt. There'll be mass, there'll be mass, uh, uh, movements in the streets. So they still have to kind of keep up this guise of, 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 uh, you know, speaking for, you know, all Americans. Uh, and because of that, you know, they have to, um, you know, respond to mass movements. So, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's important to know that, the only way that, you know, moving forward, we can, you know, protect, you know, the 11 million people who will face immediate eviction and the, you know, millions more who will face eviction in the coming months. The only way to prevent those evictions is if we're going to, you know, have a mass movement, have a mass struggle um, demanding that the, uh, you know, the state, um, particularly Congress, you know, take action on this matter. Um and we'll see that Supreme Court is going to, uh, you know, uh, uh, defend uh, or, or uh, you know, try to uh, protect the state's interest in that way. Um, but, but as we know, you know, they they are, you know, they have to give they have to give to the people's demands at some point. And so that's why uh, you know it's important that we keep, keep fighting keep fighting on this front. Yeah, and that's exactly uh, the next point I wanted to uh, move to, Michael, uh, in our last uh, minute or so here to talk about the pushback from the people that's going to be needed to to really uh, uh, address this issue. I mean, the only reason that the uh, moratorium was extended is because of the response when, you know, Representative Cori Bush uh, did her sit out at the Capitol and was supported by people uh, who were uh, uh, outraged at this and even really sort of shamed uh, her colleagues in Congress to come back and at least make some gesture around it. And I know that um, given the uh, 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 developments here with the Supreme Court and the uh, eviction moratorium, um, I know that there are actions happening here in D.C. and elsewhere around the country to address this, Marco. Now, I was hoping you could tell us some about that. Yeah, definitely. So today there'll be actions across the country. Um, here I'm in Washington, D.C. We'll be at the Supreme Court today at five o'clock. Um, but there are actions all over the country, New Orleans, Chicago, San Diego, Albuquerque, many more um, organized under Cancel the Rents, 
um, or a national organization, um, and basically protesting the Supreme Court decision, but also to put, uh, you know, turn our eyes to, to Congress, whose responsibility it is, responsibility it is to um, cancel the rent. And, you know, I just want to say that there there is legislation already proposed to cancel to cancel all the back rent that's accumulated during the pandemic. So the ideas and the paperwork and the documents are there. Um, but of course, we know, and it became clear during the Cory Bush sit-in that, you know, it's going to take um, the people, the working class and oppressed people, to demand that um, our legislators take action on this matter. Um, otherwise, you know, and what they hope so is that we just, you know, stay quiet and take it, take it, take it. Um, but, you know, we're not going to let that happen. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Michael, for joining us today. Definitely encourage people to go to canceltherents.org and sign the petition. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the latest developments around Afghanistan following the bombings of the Kabul airport. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Dr. Radhika Desai, a professor at the University of Manitoba and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. Dr. Desai, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, of course, Dr. Desai, uh, there were suicide bombers that detonated at the airport in Kabul that uh, killed dozens of people. Uh, The death toll, I'm seeing reports ranging from uh, 30 to 60 with over uh, 100 injured. And uh, U.S. President Joe Biden gave uh, a response to this. And of course, this is all following as uh, the U.S. continues its pullout from Afghanistan. He said in part, quote, to those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this, we will not forgive, we will not forget, We will hunt you down and make you pay. I will defend our interests and our people with every measure at my command. And um, these attacks being attributed to uh, ISIS-K. And I mean, just given the uh, sort of takeover of the Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, you know, following behind the pullout of the U.S. military, a result that I think uh, many folks were expecting, including uh, the Biden administration itself. I mean, you know, what do you think this sort of means, Dr. Desai, in the broader context of, uh, uh, I mean, what continues to be the uh, uh, really collapse? Uh, further of of Afghanistan here in uh, recent weeks. And I mean, what do you think that Washington, the U.S. government is really maneuvering around at this point? Well, I think that as far as the U.S. government is concerned, the U.S. government and its actions and its intentions and its plans, I would say that there are there is one expression that I would associate with it, which is that we are we, we have been for a long time in a in a phase of dangerous incoherence in American policy. It is dangerous, it is desperate, but at the same time it is incoherent because on the one hand, the United States 
ruling elites, uh, options are shrinking in significant ways. And at the same time, this makes them more desperate uh, in order to, to, to do something. So what are the various elements of this incoherence? So on the one hand, uh, the, the war in Afghanistan, of course, it would have been great if the Americans had actually been able to install a, a regime capable of, in, in Afghanistan, capable of winning legitimacy within Afghanistan while doing America's bidding. But unfortunately, what America offers the rest of the world, particularly countries like Afghanistan, is practically guaranteeing that this will never happen. You can never have a regime that is both legitimate and subservient to American interests. So that being impossible, the Americans have for the last 20 years been playing a dance in Afghanistan where its stated goals, whether it is saving Afghan women or presumably from Afghan men or, or uh, uh, fighting terrorism, etc., none of these have actually been the case. What has actually gone on is bonanza after bonanza for the American military-industrial complex. So American people in general are opposed to these wars, we know, that from poll after poll, but at the same time, the wars continue under some pretext or another. Now, in a column I wrote just a couple, uh, I think less than two weeks ago, just around the time when this drama was beginning, I said, you know, the fact of the matter is the Americans habitually don't ever entirely leave. And it's quite possible that the Americans will want to leave, you know, some sort of presence there. We don't know that yet. We're still in the phase, we're in a very turbulent phase. There are many, many unknowns. But it is quite possible that the bombing combined with, you know, uh, it's quite, the bombing may be used as an excuse by the Americans to sort of say, well, no, we still have some unfinished business here. We are going to keep something here. Or... Um, it may be essentially, and, and, and a, sorry, an indication of that was already given by President Biden last night when he said, we're going to fight you, we're going to deal with you. Well, how exactly does he propose to deal with them if he is leaving Afghanistan with all American personnel, if they are leaving in place in Afghanistan a government which is not only extremely fragile, but the Americans are doing everything in their power to undermine. They are uh, essentially ensuring that the Afghan new, whatever government comes into power in Afghanistan will face a massive economic crisis because the Americans are essentially have sequestered the reserves of Afghanistan and they are going to they, 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 have, they have prevented the uh, IMF from releasing critically needed funds. So it's a really big mess, and the Americans are creating an even bigger one. And then there's one other thing I should mention. I know I've gone on for a while, but one more thing. And that is that the announced goals, the announced rationale of this downturn, you know, yes, you know, we are not going to fight a forever war. And what's more, the Biden administration is kind of trying to paint this, what is essentially a withdrawal in a positive light by saying, you know what, it's going to allow us to concentrate on our real enemies or our real competitors, China and Russia. Well, fine. But the fact of the matter is that this withdrawal from Afghanistan is actually going to naturally, as in fact even the British have recognized, increase the influence of China, of Russia, etc. in the region. So in what sense exactly is this advancing the agenda of the Americans, which I don't endorse, but let's assume that that's their agenda. How exactly does this advance their agenda? It is not at all clear. And that's what I mean by incoherence. The options are narrowing, but the compulsions remain as strong as ever. Fight wars, try to subjugate other countries, open their 
them up to American corporate interests, etc. So this is what we are looking at. And at the moment, things are very fluid. Things are still evolving. Let's see what happens on Tuesday, etc. Yeah, definitely, uh, Dr. Desai, you are absolutely right in what you said about uh, Biden appointing to, you know, continued attacks on uh, in Afghanistan against the, you know, ISIS-K who have taken responsibility for this bombing. He said that, you know, I've also ordered my commanders to develop operational plans to strike ISIS-K assets, leadership and facilities. We will respond with force and precision at our time at the place we choose and the moment of our choosing. Now, I mean, we, we say frequently on this show that there's no such thing as a smart bomb or a precision bomb. Right. Bombs, I mean, there's there's no guided anything. They are indiscriminate in their destruction and the way they deliver death. But I am curious, Dr. Desai, about the U.S. intelligence apparatus that has already revealed that there are other very real terrorist threats to the airport. Um, and, and, and the reports seem to be very specific. And this is suspicious to me because uh, General um, Kenneth McKenzie Jr., who is the commander of the U.S. Central Command or CENTCOM, told a press briefing that these plans that intelligence have revealed include plans for rocket attacks and a vehicle bombing. It seems incredibly suspicious to me, and maybe I'm just really cynical about the U.S. intelligence apparatus, which who shouldn't be, that they suddenly have all of this very specific intelligence about attacks um, that could be forthcoming, but they couldn't see the one that happened the other day. And they couldn't do better at organizing the withdrawal in the first place, knowing that the agreement was already made. With the Taliban, Trump made the uh, agreement, whatever we have to say about his agreement, that I, I just I just find the entire manner that the United States went about this withdrawal that needed to happen deeply, deeply suspicious yeah. as to, you know, how how is the greatest military power in the world not done better than this? Absolutely. I mean, the fact of the matter is that we know that while on the one hand, the Americans' ability to collect um, military intelligence is very great. For example, we know that uh, we have seen reported widely that uh, throughout this Afghan war, this 20 years war, the, the intelligence was always underlining the extent to which the American supported governments of Afghanistan, whether it was Karzai or more recently Ghani, were, had, did not have wide legitimacy, that it was deeply corrupt that it was not legitimate, etc., etc. But the, the military side always said, no, no, we're just going to work with these guys, etc. So we know that they have the capacity. The real issue is, how is the intelligence used and how it is, how can you say, offered to the public? For what reason? So all of this is highly political. So clearly, um, at one level, you know, the fact that they did not see this coming. I mean, it may be that the American military establishment at the moment is in, in great shambles, but the fact of the matter is that they have the capacity to know a lot more. And uh, if they could not foresee this, it's certainly a very, very high level of disorganization that we are looking at. And if they did foresee it and they ignored this advice, it's because they 
particularly want perhaps a reason. The American administration wants to create a reason why they should remain there, why they will deal with this ISIS-K, etc., etc., as a as a as a way of keeping as a way of creating a legitimacy for some sort of continued presence there. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking about what you mentioned a little earlier, Doctor Desai, when you said that really it's impossible for there to be a government in Afghanistan that is both seen as legitimate by the public and that is subserving into the United States. And it's just 100 percent clear that, I mean, the U.S. is really only interested in control. But th- those are two um, contradictory interests. You, you know what I mean? And so, you know, I'm wondering how you sort of situate the United States presence in Afghanistan with sort of its broader plans for uh, the Middle East, sort of uh, a West Asia region. You know what I mean? And from a geopolitical standpoint, how you see that sort of uh, uh, playing out, because I mean, my impression really is that the U.S. didn't want to be perceived as having been defeated in Afghanistan. And so for all these years, there's been all this bloodshed and suffering on the part of the Afghan people, basically so that Washington could save face. And so, I mean, what do you think that this sort of portends for the United States in the region, uh, given this? More than just save face, right? So first of all, Afghanistan has remained a place, like uh, I, I, I forget who it was that recently brought us uh, brought this back to our memory, right? Which is that they, this mother of all bombs, the MOAB that was dropped on Afghanistan, like it has been a place where American arms can be advertised and, and, and so on as well. And of course, sold. And American contractors give, be, be given juicy contracts and so on. But to come back to the more fundamental point, it seems to me that the, the American game has always been that, oh, we are going to create friendly governments that are going to cooperate with us. And this is going to be the substitute for empire. You know, the Americans have always wanted to imitate the British Empire and its expansiveness and so on. And they thought, okay, we're going to do it this way. But here's the flaw. Here's the fly in the ointment. It has always been the fly in the ointment. That's why you have had continuous revolts against American control. Whether they take the form of socialism in Cuba or whether they take the form of Islamic revolution in Iran and today the Taliban phenomena in Afghanistan. It's the problem is this. The problem is that the Americans want there to be an economic organization which is essentially neoliberal. Very few social services, very little government intervention, no taxation for the rich, uh, etc. And the, what the people of poor countries in the third world need is the exact opposite. So they create, they, they manage to maintain governments in power for a certain length of time. Take Peru, for example. Everybody is bewildered at the election of this left-wing uh, Castillo uh, as, as president. But the fact of the matter is that what the Americans considered success in Peru led to the most horrific COVID consequences. They had undermined the health system to such an extent that basically Peru is at the top of the charts in terms of the number of deaths per million of population, right, at the moment. And and that's this is this kind of suffering. That's the tip of the iceberg. There have been decades of suffering under the previous president. So the fact is that this is why the Americans cannot win. The American, What the Americans want and what the people need are diametrically opposed. And that's why you're going to continue to see wave upon wave of such um, uh, uh, such um, opposition. And when you, when you create a situation in which the left 
is either censored or defeated like in Afghanistan. The left-wing government of the 70s was defeated and that's why you got the Taliban. Then you will get forces like Taliban. You will get forces like uh, the Islamic Republic in Iran, etc. So this this is the issue. So 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 really, I I think that to go back to my original point, this is a moment of dangerous incoherence. I think the Biden administration could very well jump from the frying pan into the fire by creating a, a more dangerous confrontation with Russia, with China, etc. And this is not going to be good for the American people. What the American people really want is a well-functioning economy, prosperity that actually works its way down to ordinary people, etc. And it does not seem to me that Biden has a viable plan for that, although there is much brouhaha around this uh, big new deal, the multi-trillion dollar deal that has recently been passed by Congress. The fact of the matter is that it has already been whittled down and we will see how it actually does, uh, considering that the overriding aim of the Biden, in fact, for the last many administrations, since going back to Reagan, at least, if not before, has been to essentially uh, enrich a tiny elite at the expense of everybody else. That is even in the United States. So both within the U.S. and wherever the U.S. goes to occupy, they are not able to win broad legitimacy. Absolutely. I mean, the scourge of neoliberalism just ravaging people both at home and abroad. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Desai, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, the co-host of The Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie, glad to be back. Absolutely. And Nate, um, of course, there's a serious issue with uh, people being able to evacuate Afghanistan as the Taliban takes over that country, uh, uh, suicide bombs, uh, killing and injuring uh, many people there in that country. But there's also another side of this in terms of uh, athletes and what this means for athletics uh, on a number of levels, I think particularly amongst uh, women and girls, an issue that uh, the U.S. government, at least from my perspective, has sort of seized upon opportunistically in a way, because, I mean, I certainly don't think the U.S. occupation of uh, their country uh, spelt out a great existence for the women and girls of that country either. But, I mean, what do you think uh, uh, these recent developments in Afghanistan following behind the withdrawal of U.S. military forces has meant for athletes in that country, Nate? Yeah, I mean, this is something that's like, you know, we've heard relentlessly now, you know, the, all the, the U.S. mainstream media establishment, political class, every, just talking incessantly, using this as sort of a uh, something in their back pocket to pull out uh, to make the case of why we need to kind of stay there forever sort of thing. I mean, this is a country, too, that, you know, is highly strategic, as y'all talked about on the show quite a bit. And um, there's just people within the ruling class in this country that are, that are just 
you know, downright indignant and outraged at Biden for going through with this. So we start getting more and more stories about the, the devastation it's going to cause a lot of people. And, it, and, it, and the truth is, it, it will. I mean, it's uh, it is sad that, you know, you've had 20 years of coming in and propping something up and sort of like, you know, urban centers and Kabul particularly, where you create a, a, a dynamic that's completely unsustainable, that, that's not really based on, um, you know, anything that can, can last long term other than just by, you know, brute military occupation. And um, and then you, you pull the rug out, right? But that's what the U.S. has done. But let's not, the, the bigger issue here is let's go back to like the 1980s. I give a guy, Zibin Al Brzezinski, the, the father of Mika Brzezinski on Morning Joe. Um, he absolutely made it very clear that they his goal was at no cost. I mean, whatever the costs were, taking out the, the Soviet-aligned Afghan government that did have gender equity, did have healthcare rights enshrined in it, did allow sports um, to flourish, um, and had a culture, had a class of people in the urban centers there in the country that, uh, that were socialist-leaning. Um, and because that could not be tolerated, it was preferable to the Brzezinski's of the world to finance, bankroll, you know, armed to the teeth, like Mujahideen fighters that you know are the Taliban now, um, and allow them to come to power all in the name of weakening the Soviet Union, right? It's all about him. It's all about his aristocratic family roots in Poland and, uh, and, and other people within the U.S., you know, far, ruling class that, uh, that were in on, in on this project. And that is why we're seeing what we're seeing now. We're seeing, a, a, you know, a country that, you know, if they actually would allow the, the, the political class, the people that supported socialism to, to prosper, to, to develop their country, you know, they could have defeated the Taliban, right? Things could have played out far differently than they have. Instead, you had them come to power in the 90s, put in all these just brutal type practices. I and mean, then in 2001, the U.S. coming in, have 20 years of just brute military occupation enforced, um, you know, uh, government rule of an extraordinarily corrupt government that's, uh, you know, that, that, yeah, they allowed the rights of people within for you know, women's sports and whatnot to exist in a vacuum. I mean, in these urban centers primarily, uh, while not doing anything to really build up a whole country um, in a way that could actually be sustainable. It was sustainable. It was purely about building like a neoliberal type economy and, and you know, imposing that on Afghanistan. And now that the U.S. is leaving uh, due to like their own you know, political calculations, uh, that that's being pulled out. But it's, it, there was no way that anything they were building was going to last. So all this stuff about how sad it is, well, it is sad. The, the blame for this is is purely in Washington, in my opinion. Yeah, that's definitely true. And especially as we're looking at uh, the population of Afghanistan that is so uh, uh, emotionally invested in uh, sports, especially, you know, new newer kind of sports that that Mm -hmm. are not as traditional because 60 percent of Afghanistan's population is made up of youth. And that's pretty, you know, common in in a lot of countries where war has been a constant for a long time. Um, And already, you know, Nate, we're seeing athletes, Afghan athletes, uh, suffering retribution as the Taliban has taken control over the rest of the country. So what's going on with uh, um, with with Afghan athletes in the wake of, you know, this this badly planned and and chaotic uh, U.S. withdrawal? Well, you had the uh, documented issue this week of 50 Afghan women athletes being evacuated to Australia. I mean, it's been made clear that um, women will no longer be able to participate in sports publicly 
Um, and and it's, it's might even apply to men in a lot of cases. I mean, there's talk of like the idea of sport being uh, kind of imposed on the outside, not fitting within the Taliban's uh, interpretation of Islam. And, you know, it's really Salafist like, uh, you know, teachings of Islam that come from Saudi Arabia, come from the UAE, Kuwait, you know, that, that sort of scene uh, that's been brought in there. So, yeah, you've had, you know, the case of Jamil, uh, you know, who's cited in this article in The Nation, a 28-year-old athlete. Um, who's in, like you mentioned, popular action sport involves extreme sport um, of high high risk jump jumps basically off cliffs. And they've spent years now developing this. And he's also from the Hazari ethnic group, which is, you know, Shia. Who's, so he's facing a double sort of, a, you know, dose of oppression now with the Taliban coming in, being Shia on top of, um, you know, being an athlete who's practicing something they, they deem as, you know, just nothing more than, you know, Heretic, heretic activity, and uh, so you have that being completely shut down. Um, you have, and you know, who knows what kind of retributions that are come to all these all these athletes now um, in terms of making a public statement that this isn't allowed anymore. Um, obviously, it's going to be pushing this stuff underground. Uh, there won't be you know, resources allocated towards it at all. And the reality is, uh, you know, Jamil, I'll just quote what he said here. He goes, right now, the situation is very unpredictable for anyone. Uh, we spent many years spreading the art of this new sport and motivating girls and boys to practice and perform at different stages. As the Taliban are against these activities, they would definitely find us soon. They will consider punishment for us as they never let anything be forgiven. People are striving to survive. Their sports would not be an option now. Every plan and dream got shattered. So you see clearly, um, and he goes on to talk about like something as beautiful as sports that connects people, a healer of trauma, that bring people together from different groups and, and, and you know, ethnicities and religions um, is being ripped, ripped out because uh, it doesn't fit within this harsh interpretation of Islam. That is, let's not be, let's not forget, has been bankrolled and funded by Washington going back to the 1980s. This, this Taliban government never would have come to power if it wasn't for trying to, you know, do something to suck the Soviet Union into fighting in Afghanistan to hopefully bleed them out as Brzezinski and his cronies uh, talked about. And that's where the blame lies for this. And I think that we cannot say that enough. Absolutely. And shifting gears a little bit here, Nate, I mean, this week uh, marks the 19th anniversary, 19 years um, since the infamous uh, uh, practice interview with Alan Iverson, the answer. And, you know, uh, the the sort of soundbite from that is him sort of complaining about practice and people asking him about practice and all of that. And, it, you know, it, it made him come off like, you know, a spoiled, uh, entitled, you know, millionaire athlete that doesn't even want to do the most uh, basic of things. But there's a broader context around that, that what was going on in um, Iverson's personal life around that time that I think actually fleshes out a lot more that. Uh, uh, was going on and that I think frankly shows a lot of the coverage that Iverson got around that to be unfair but I actually want to play that clip and come back and get your uh, response wow we talk everybody on my team all the rest of the soldiers that went to war with me enjoying their summer enjoying it but look at me look what I'm going through I got to listen to Phil Talk to me about this for what? It's about summertime. I'm supposed to be with my kids and my wife, chilling. 
I got to go through this. This way I got to go through this Allen Iverson life in a nutshell. I know I don't do everything right. No, I do. I do a whole lot of that ain't right. Yes, I do. I'm just like y'all, though. Believe me. Like you. I'm just like you. I'm just like you. I might be better. I might not be. But I'm just like you. I'm human. Just like you. It ain't even about really me. No, I'm selfish to the fact that my daughter got to go through it. My daughter's seven years old, man. I mean, all y'all ask yourself, you know, just think about that. If y'all had a kid that's able to, to, to understand what's going on and somebody talk bad about their daddy or their mother every day about a damn game, about a game, how would y'all feel? I mean, for real, honestly. Any of y'all that got kids, I know y'all understand. This is what my daughter got to deal with when she go to school every day. Tell your daddy, come home. Daddy, my teacher said don't leave. Daddy, um, um, the girl in my class said you getting traded. Daddy, this, that, and the third. I mean, for a game, just for one minute. Stick your foot in my shoes and try to deal with what I go through in my life. My best friend, dead. Dead. And we lost. And this is what I got to go through for the rest of the summer until the season start over again. This is what I got to go through. This is my life in a nutshell. Y'all go home and have y'all... Lovely life, man. Live it up to the fullest. Yeah, and uh, again, that's Allen Iverson. Also want to make a quick correction. That's actually, it was uh, May. That was the 19th anniversary, but something that's been still going around quite a bit here. But I mean, I mean, I feel like he said it all there, Nate, but definitely curious your reaction here. Yeah, no, it's something I wish you would have hit on back in May, but I think it's, you know, it doesn't really matter whether it's in May or now. It's something that needs to be discussed. And, uh, you know, it's something that really struck me because when, when this was going on, I mean, I was playing high school basketball at the time. I was young, I think ninth or 10th grade. And uh, it was just, it was just, I just remember sports center, just running this on a loop, you know, we're talking about practice. Like the whole implication is he's just saying practice doesn't matter. I'm, I'm better than this. You know, I'm, I'm too good for that. And it played up the whole thing where then the reaction comes from mainstream, like, you know, middle-class America saying that, uh, you know, oh, that's everything that's wrong. These young entitled spoiled athletes. These people, they just don't get it. They don't, they don't, they don't know how to think about the team first. And the reality is, like, none of that ever gets placed on like what management's talking about, what what you know, the, the the way the team structures highlighted. It's all simply that you need to shut up and dribble, very literally. And the way he's bringing a seven year old daughter into it, the way he's talking about the effects on people outside, and the way he's just bringing up his humanity in a very precise and uh, deliberate way is very important because. It's something that we see now is talked about much, much more. And, you know, with, with you know, LeBron James, Jalen Brown, uh, many NBA, Kyrie Irving, so many NBA players bringing up these issues. But back then, this was not talked about. You heard him bring up the death of his, a close friend, too. And pushing on the media the idea, like, you don't, like, you're, you, you, you're just numb to, you know, whatever. You just don't even care or just don't care about what goes on in the lives of people you deem to be, you know, um, commodities. You deem to be, like, our entertainment. And that's not you make a lot of money. So shut up. You should be grateful. And that's really Iverson pushing back on that. So we can really look at Iverson and say that in a lot of ways he was way ahead of his time. And, you know, this is before social media. 
before um, a lot of these things could be talked out and people could connect and kind of learn and grow through that medium. So um, I think it just needs to be pointed out that a lot of the NBA players that are doing stuff now. They grew up in this era. And when they say like, you know, they're mad about being told to shut up and dribble and stuff like this, it comes from anger that roots back to such as how Allen Iverson was treated in the wake of this press conference. Definitely. In our last couple of minutes, Nate, I shift gears again, but I think uh, sort of a related issue in a way is um, this issue around Cam Newton, the New England Patriots. I believe Newton has been out around some issue, I believe, of the NFL's uh, COVID testing protocols. And, you know, uh, with a lot of talk around uh, Mac Jones, who, who I believe has uh, been a contender to uh, replace him in his absence, or I think has been replacing him up until this point. And I mean, just the way that uh, Newton's been treated in the Boston media, which, you know, I think is uh, uh, just, you know, drumming up once again, that old conversation around the treatment of black quarterbacks as opposed to white. And and so, I mean, how do you see these different dynamics playing out here? Yeah. So like Chuck Modiano, you know, writes for uh, Deadspin and does so much great work uh, covering uh, protests in D.C. has been uh, has been tweeting about this relentlessly and been incurring uh, the wrath of like a lot of white, white Boston sports pundits and, and fans. Um, the reality is they drafted the Patriots drafted Mac Jones in the first round. Uh, there's a school of thought that they should get him on the field play right away. There's also like, you know, it's unclear whether Cam Newton's been gotten the vaccine. So there's like a lot of like shaming around that too. Um, the idea of like, did he do something wrong? And then trying to, you know, track, you know, some people say it was a miscommunication, but then still just the coverage of the day to day of like how he's performing in practice scrimmage. You see that like Chuck pointed out that, you have when Mac Jones does poorly and Cam does well, like the, the tweets about Mac Jones doing poorly get hardly any retweets at all. But anything about Mac Jones doing well immediately goes viral, basically, in that world. Um, and that you basically have a, a fan base that is, you know, the first mistake that Cam starting on week one the entire year is going to be confronted with any mistake. We got to put Mac in, who ironically went to my high school, but uh and is a really good quarterback from the University of Alabama. But nonetheless, it just shows. And it's not so much about Mac Jones, right? It's about the the attitude of fans, and it's about the whiteness, white male you know, makeup of local sports media that covers NFL teams and the role that plays in driving narratives about who should play, who shouldn't, um, who's doing well, who's not, and the reasons for that. So I just think it's important that we kind of also with the history of Boston, we know about very clearly and the way Bill Russell was treated and the way so many athletes have been treated um, in that town, black athletes have been treated in that town, uh, professional athletes, I should say. Uh, it's important to to kind of point, point a light of that and, uh, and track that as the season goes on. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, as always, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spudic in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, August 27th, 2021. 
And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right. Happy Friday. Indeed, y'all. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades. That's you to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and we hope one day again, YouTube, (laughs) at BAM Necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating. They can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. They can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. We are streaming live on Sputnik on Facebook. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Margaret Kimberly, editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of the book, Presidential Black America and the Presidents. Margaret, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It's good to be back. And it's good to have you back, Margaret. And, you know, I I wanted to start today really trying to see if we could make a connection between two of the most pressing issues in the news in the U.S. right now. And one of them, of course, being the ongoing impacts of the bombings at the Kabul airport in Afghanistan following behind the U.S. military's withdrawal from that country after just, you know, uh, you know, uh, decades of uh, interference and just bloodshed there in that country. And the uh, Supreme Court basically ending the moratorium on uh, evictions here in the U.S., putting literally millions of people at risk of being put out on the street. Now, on their face, these two issues can maybe seem disparate and disconnected. But when we think about what imperialism is, Vladimir Lenin tells us that imperialism is capitalism at the highest level. It's taken to a global scale. It's capital asserting itself all over the globe. And we know that military might is a crucial tool in capital exerting itself uh, across the globe. And when we also look at the uh, eviction moratorium issue and how we're under a capitalist system that puts a price tag on everything, including basic human needs like shelter, like having a place to live. In this country, you don't have a right to a place to live. You only have a right to what you can afford. And so 
what I'm getting at, Esther, is when we sort of look at these issues, both domestic and foreign, it seems as though ultimately they're all tied together by the capitalist system, which is what drives and facilitates this exploitation, this war, this discarding of humanity that we see both inside the United States and outside. And I think it's important to note that because I think the only way we can really hope to mount a resistance to these issues is to address ourselves to the contradictions of the capitalist system itself. Well, we, you know, we live in a system that commodifies everything. So our healthcare system is profit driven. Um, that's one of the reasons we have such a problem with COVID in this country. Um, the country that shows us the way, as far as I'm concerned, is China. Uh, they have an infrastructure that is meant to help people. So this nation of more than a billion has had something like 5,000 deaths from COVID uh, because they have they marshaled their resources to test, to trace, to, they built new hospitals. Um, rather than, you know, we still see today, a year and a half into the pandemic, hospitals overwhelmed. So housing, housing is not a human right. Again, it's something you have to pay for. And because our system is uh, so uh, prioritizes uh, austerity, um, and by that I mean the system that uh, puts people in a state of precarity all the time, so Congress set aside money to help people pay the rent, and I was reading yesterday that 90% of the funds haven't been spent. So, and in the case of war, we have $2 trillion, with the T, trillion dollars spent in Afghanistan. Um, the uh, defense, um, the military-industrial complex, they made out like bandits. And we have war because it is so profitable to these people who run the government. Who I remember the CEO of Raytheon or McDonnell Douglas or one of them last year during the campaign, he essentially said he didn't care who won because he knew that um, they would be taken care of. The defense um, secretary came straight from uh, Raytheon. So money is, I don't know if it's the root of all evil. I guess it says love of money is the root of all evil. I suppose that's true. But all our problems, everything that we've just, uh, that you just mentioned, um, is uh, created by this, uh, uh, this system. And they say capitalism is in crisis, but it, it seems to be, Somebody will have to explain that to me a little bit. I, I sort of understand it, where um, uh, so many things are cannibalized at this point, but all our problems are created, um, nearly all, by this um, predatory system. And you know, Margaret, as much as we understand that the capitalist underpinnings of imperialism, that the pursuit of profit, and exploitation of resources and exploitation of people is really at the root of imperialist war. Probably, I would say, most if not all war. Just the fact that people are surprised at the complete mess that has been made of the withdrawal 
from Afghanistan, not just by the United States, because this is a mistake I keep making myself of all the NATO partners of France, Germany, you know, uh, uh, Britain, uh, all these other countries that had troops, uh, contractors, uh, mercenaries and their respective intelligence operations in Afghanistan. And and they were so good at propping up this war for 20 years, you know, espousing the propaganda, telling the lies, covering up the truth as as the Afghanistan papers exposed in 2019. And now we're supposed we're supposed to believe that that these very people who spent all this money and made even more money than they spent on this 20 year quagmire in Afghanistan. Now, all of a sudden, they don't know how to evacuate people. And and I find that uh, spurious at the very least. And and then just in the way these countries' leaders are making excuses and apologizing for the people that worked with their governments. And I, and I think that's another question that they have thousands of whom they have left behind, you know, saying, well, you know, we didn't know the Taliban was going to take over this quickly. And, and and all of the other deflections that they've provided for why they couldn't evacuate people knowing that they were going to be pulling their forces out last year is, I think, another one of those kinds of bait and switch moves that capitalists think they can make when they're trying to fool the rest of us into believing their propaganda. Like, oh, we didn't know this was going to happen. You know, things go wrong. And, and, and I'm wondering, you know, how you're seeing that aspect of of what's going on in Afghanistan now, how clearly uh, the excuses that are being made for why people are being left behind are so empty. But isn't that always the way capitalists do when they're caught by their greed and their avarice toward people? Well, yes, that's true. There's, there's, uh, there's another element of this. You just reminded me. There are people who say that the military uh, deliberately misled Biden about how the withdrawal should go about. I know Ray McGovern is one of those people. He is skeptical that the, uh, the generals are that stupid. Um, and he believes they very often uh, we have military people who don't like what a president does. And they sabotage what the president does. So that is uh, a possibility. And I don't know how one would prove that. But we have a, um, a system that, that maintains itself. And one of the ways that maintains itself is by narrowing discourse, narrowing the narrative that, um, that we are allowed to hear. So what, what happens? Um, we are, there's this agreement to leave. It starts with Trump. It continues with Biden. And, uh, but it's not thought through properly. And there is skepticism. And I'm one of those people about why did they want to leave? Is their goal to start something somewhere else? Do they, you know, China is their obsession now. Do they think they can pressure China by doing God knows what, um, uh, with that country. So those are some of the other things we um, we have to think about. But even with this somewhat of a reversal, we 
see um, the, the hawks come out, some of whom are Democrats, lest we forget. Um, the war party is bipartisan and Democrats saying we shouldn't leave. And uh, this propaganda, this really crass propaganda of American soldiers with little Afghan kids giving them water, patting them on the head. No mention, by the way, for the past 20 years of the Afghan kids killed by the United States. But uh, we have this system that props up all kinds of corruption. We have a corporate media that, well, that, that's corporate. And so they uh, promote uh, all these narratives and the propaganda. Then you heard, and it happened rather quickly, all of a sudden there were people popping up on social media, pundits, um, praising Biden and defending him and saying, oh, no, this went very well. We have to commend him. And that was uh, before the bombing. So we're fighting against all of, we're fighting against so many forces, but we have to be adamant in our anti-imperialist stance. And we can't allow the same people who lied to us back in 2001 to convince us that uh, uh, people in Afghanistan should be, be deprived of their rights deprived of their ability to form a government that represents them, deprived of their right to live in peace, that um, uh, the poverty draft should be uh, permitted to uh, put uh, young people in, in danger. Uh, all of these things need to be rejected. And so the chaos, uh, the chaotic withdrawal and the bombing I believe, make the case for that stance. And we have to be uh, clear about uh, not deviating from it. Definitely. And I mean, I totally agree, Margaret, that we have to be steadfast and consistent in our anti-imperialist politics, because, I mean, a, a troublesome trend that I see are people who call themselves anti-imperialist and then will turn around in the same breath spit out an imperialist line as it pertains to U.S. intervention and things like that. And I appreciate you raising these, just this ridiculous propaganda, you know, with the troops holding the babies and, you know, the videos of them giving people water. It, like, it's just, it's just the most transparent um, sort of thing, almost to the point of being insulting. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of those copaganda videos of like, you know, uh, uh, the cops playing on the jungle gym with black kids in the hood, or maybe he's playing basketball or, or handing out ice cream or doing a viral challenge. I saw a video of one cop. He was doing the crate challenge. And uh, then somebody came and kicked the boxes from under him, which which is pretty wild. And so we're supposed to get caught up in like the feel good imagery of these videos and these photos and forget just the outright inhumanity that is the broader context. I mean, it's just like you say, I mean, you know, how do we think Afghan children have fared under a U.S. occupation all these years? I mean, you know, to to try to turn around and paint the U.S. military in Afghanistan as a welcome force that the people look to, you know, for whatever guidance, leadership, goodies, like what, whatever and what have you, I mean, is actually pretty gross. But what it implies to me, Margaret, is that there seems to be some consciousness or some awareness on the part of the state that this whole Afghanistan situation really does not look good and that the uh, American people, I, I don't think are, are generally supportive 
of war, even with all the resources and all the propaganda that's aimed at basically bludgeoning uh, American people into consenting to these wars and things like that. And so these little uh, uh, pictures and and videos and stuff to me uh, uh, is almost a kind of a tacit admission of how bad things are in a way to the point to where at least they feel like they have to present some kind of counter imagery. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. And it's constant. It has to be constant because they want buy-in, not just for Afghanistan, but for some future um, uh, conflict that uh, they may be planning or just, you know, they have a placeholder intervention somewhere and they just know that they know themselves, right? And they're going to want to intervene somewhere else or even impose sanctions somewhere else and claim that the U.S. is doing people a favor by causing them to suffer. So. the last thing they want is for an anti-war, for a pro-peace narrative to take hold. So they are going to keep promoting these lies in order to continually get buy-in for imperialism. They do not want to take a chance that the public will turn against what it is they plan to do all the time. Definitely. And on that note, I mean... When we talk about propaganda, it's not just a matter of what is said, but what isn't said. And so not only sort of the fuller context of what we're seeing in Afghanistan and all the other conflicts and wars the U.S. is involved in, what is missing is um, an anti-war perspective, which once upon a time you would actually see every now and again in uh uh, uh, the uh, U.S. mainstream media. But, uh, you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on the timeline on this, Margaret, but it feels that perhaps around the time of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, all these folks are gone. And so, you know, the what that means then is for the American people who see this 24-hour news cycle, even the thought of there being some narrative counter to what they're seeing, it doesn't even enter the mind because nothing like that is really presented. You know what I mean? And so we have to see that also as a a purposeful because we know that these uh, media platforms are corporate entities ran by billionaires, ran by the wealthy. And these are the people who stand to profit from all of these conflicts and as such quite naturally will not have uh, people on their platforms uh, that may affect their bottom line. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Margaret Kimberly. And, you know, Margaret, we left off talking about how excuse me, anti-war and certainly anti-imperialist narratives are just completely absent from the mainstream corporate news uh, narrative, right? But it really made me think about how that connects directly to this explosion in alternative media outlets that we've seen 
over the last few years. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, 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 podcasts and radio shows like ours, uh, websites, news sites, uh, uh, all sorts of things, YouTube channels, all the time being made with people pushing these politics that do not exist at all um, in uh, uh, the mainstream. And why is that? Because the mainstream narratives are controlled by the ruling class. Anything that is an actual challenge to that class cannot be allowed to pass through. And even, you know, when I look at platforms like Black Agenda Report, which have been around for a long time, has been doing this work for a long time. And I was actually, I was reading your tribute to Glenn Ford the other day, uh, Margaret, and you mentioned this platform, The Black Commentator, which I had never heard of. And I looked up uh, the site. It's actually still up, though it's <laughs> quite outdated. But, you know, and so it's just clear that there are people who have been doing this and really have been in this struggle around the media piece for a long time. And this alternative media is so important because it is a question of consciousness. And when you're in a country of people that are as deeply propagandized and inundated with ruling class ideas as the people of the United States, just raising consciousness or challenging ideas can be some of the most dangerous work, not dangerous, can be some of the most difficult work. You know what I mean? Although in some cases it can be dangerous. I mean, look at Julian Assange, look at Gary Webb. You know, I mean, there are definitely, um, uh, you know, uh, existential threats made to people who want to be truthful about things that are, are happening in the world and how the state has a role in that. But the fact that these platforms are able to perform this service, really, and I'm not trying to overstate things, but I think there's a reason why say, uh, uh, by any means necessary or a black agenda report has a particular audience. There are people who seek out this information, who seek out this uh, uh, analysis. And so then it uh, becomes no surprise when we see these platforms come under attack. I mean, out of nowhere, we see people's, you know, social media platforms get suspended or taken down oftentimes without explanation because they frankly just like don't have to because it's their company and they can do what they want with it, regardless of what their own rules actually say. Even us, we're dealing with uh, a YouTube strike on our stream right now that we can't really figure out what the issue even was. Hopefully we'll be back up soon. But um, not only I think, um, Margaret, is it necessary on the part of the capitalist state to sort of tamp down on political repression in terms of people being on the street and organizing. But I think another part of quashing that uh, resistance is to also keep a vice grip on the ideas that are entering the consciousness of the American people and trying to see to it that the only real narratives they're exposed to are those narratives that serve the interest of the wealthy elite in this country. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, just, well, first of all, let's not forget the former president of the United States has been deplatformed. Right. So anybody can be deplatformed. I'm not interested in anything Donald Trump has to say, but this is an indication of what we're up against uh, if you step outside of the confines of, uh, um, of, of the establishment. 
but we need to use these platforms as much as we can, as often as we can, for as long as we can, because this is done on purpose. They know that if people hear uh, voices who say, no, we don't have to uh, be at war all the time, who interrupt this 20 years. I mean, 20 years of Afghanistan with hardly any reporting after it first began. None. And uh, But they know if people are exposed to different points of view, then they will change their minds and they will rebel against uh, military spending, $750, $750 billion military budget, 60% of discretionary spending. People won't uh, believe that they have to vote for um, uh, Democrats who are allegedly so much better, but who go along with uh, uh, all of these things we've been talking about. So if people are exposed to different ideas, then they are in danger. They have to keep up this front of um, that people are in favor of these interventions. You know, one of the reasons Donald Trump was able to get enough votes to defeat Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College is that he talked about ending the forever wars. This is something the average person wants has wanted for a long time. And so they have to tell you, well, there's really something good, or those other people are evil, or what about the Afghan women, or something. They've got to constantly tell you something to keep people on board and to keep people from uh, uh, opposing this bipartisan uh, war party. So yes, we are propaganda, as most Americans uh, I think would uh, be angry if, at hearing themselves described that way, but that doesn't make it any less true. Um, that it happens to be a fact, and that is why we have to work to stay, uh, to be able to communicate with people as much as we possibly can. Yeah, you know, Margaret, and I find that on the so-called left, whatever you want to call the left, in, in this country, it is very difficult. It is growing more and more difficult, I think, to have these conversations about, you know, uncompromising uh, anti-imperialism and to bring this information to light, even in so-called left organizing circles, because there's so much or there has been so much leeway given to this particular administration. And I know people are like, well, you know, it's only been uh, uh, hasn't, you know, hasn't even been two years into Biden's administration and it's not a whole lot of time. But seriously, when you have the president of the United States, who, as as you and Sean have pointed out, and as we point out frequently on this show, is supposed to be the representation of the lesser of the two evils. And everything Donald Trump did was supposed to be the most evil thing that was going to bring the United States to the brink of destruction. But it is now reported that U.S. <laughs> U.S. Uh, uh, forces, U.S. officials gave the Taliban a list of names of American citizens, green card holders and Afghan allies to give them entry into the outer perimeter of the city's airport that the U.S. was relying on the Taliban for security for. Mind you, now, this is the this is the entity that the United States claims under every administration 
was the enemy of the United States. And that's why we're there fighting because of the Taliban and and and, you know, also because of Al Qaeda or any other Islamic, you know, extremist organization that they could come up with. But they're giving the Taliban information about the people that that the U.S. wants to evacuate. And what is the response of lesser evil Biden? Well, you know, I don't know if such lists exist. But then he says there have been occasions where our military has contacted the military counterparts in the Taliban and said, hey, this bus is coming through with X number of people on it made up of the following groups of people. And we want you to let that bus through. So, yes, there have been occasions like that. I mean, it's like there is this faction of the so-called left. I guess they call themselves progressives who, when they are presented with this kind of information, Margaret are still loath to criticize Joseph Biden for the warmonger that he is, no different from any other president, and also a collaborator with the so-called enemy of the United States, even, even farther than that. So that makes him as much a part of the problem as Trump and every other neocon that came before them. I, I mean, how do, you, how do you see our ability to bridge that huge chasm just among the progressive left? Well, it's, you know, the, all of those things are part of the, uh, the mishandling of, uh, of the withdrawal. You know, I, was, uh, I heard recently that when the Soviets left Afghanistan, it was a process that took months. And there was no uh, chaos. They said they were leaving. They left. They marched out of uh, Kabul and the rest of the country. And uh, whatever else happened after that had nothing to do with them. But we also have we also have a country that um, it's interesting as uh, uh, as it um, devolves in its crisis is less and less able to do anything properly. So uh, we have a president and uh, his team who clearly didn't ask enough questions, who were possibly misled by the military. And then all of a sudden, you're right, for 20 years we're told Taliban evil, Taliban evil. By the way, uh, who started the Taliban? Well, the United States in the late 70s when Jimmy Carter was president, when an Afghan government that was left wing asked the Soviet Union for help. So Carter and Brzezinski thought of, of um, supplying uh, jihadist groups with money and weapons. Um, Osama bin Laden was one of those people. So the U.S. has been back and forth. Starts the what became the Taliban, uh, the Mujahideen, the first name, and they were meeting with Ronald Reagan, and we were told they were heroes. Then uh, bin Laden, as inevitably happens, did what he wanted to do. And he's quoted as saying, we didn't really care about the U.S. and the Russians. We wanted to promote our own cause. And that culminated in the 9-11 attack. Then they were all evil. Um, and we had to go to war against um, uh, against Afghanistan. But then other times, if the United States, if it was, uh, if they thought it was um, uh, uh, productive, to get rid of the government in Libya or try to get rid of the government in Syria, once again, they were backing these jihadist elements again. Then they want to leave town and it's, you know, they're giving them information. So this is what happens. This is a natural consequence of um, a government that never is never honest and never uh, presents what 
never presents the right thing. It's always just the opposite. Uh, whatever the U.S. government does abroad, you should mistrust. That's I. I think you're rarely going to be wrong if you if you take that stance. So uh, so of course they're going to end up doing things that. Uh, don't make sense, that go against things that they've said before, because the Taliban's friends, enemies, friends, enemies, and um, and it can go on and on. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like what you're speaking to, Margaret, is, you know, the, the opportunism of uh, U.S. imperialism in the sense that it will, it will support anybody, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their politics, as long as they are helping to facilitate what Washington wants. I mean, we know for a fact that, you know, the U.S., you know, supported and helped fund and train groups like, you know, the like the Mujahideen and was giving them shout outs in movies and and the Taliban and things like that. But, you know, the moment that so they were no longer needed that they stepped outside of, you know, of the purposes of the U.S. Well, now they were public enemy number one. And not only that, we had to carry out a whole war against them, a so-called war on terror. And so I think it shows just how adaptable this system is, which makes sense because, I mean, when you have no scruples, then, you know, you're you're liable to do anything. You're not actually um, beholden to any sense of consistency in your ideas or in your politics. You know what I mean? And this is how I think we see the United States moving along really uh, all around the earth in any number. I mean, if, if the U.S. doesn't like um, uh, uh, extremists or, or jihadists or these fundamentalist type of groups, the, these religious zealot groups, well, then why are they, why is the U.S. supporting them in uh, uh, Syria and things like that? And just uh, so many things, you know, the, the Contras in Iran, we know about all of that. I mean, this country has supported just outright death squads. Because uh, they found it necessary or useful to do so to further their own ends. And so this is how just degraded I think this system is. But, you know, Margaret, it only makes sense for it to have unfolded in this way, because when you have a system whose very premise is based off of prioritizing and privileging dollar bills over the lives of human beings, well, then this is the logic of that. It makes sense that you would carry out uh, this war in uh, Afghanistan with with, uh, however many uh, trillions of dollars having been poured into that money that would have been much better spent on the needs of people here in, in, in this country. So this is money that was, in my opinion, stolen from the American people and used to carry out death and destruction against people elsewhere on the planet. And Afghanistan is just one example of that. I mean, the, 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 the U.S. routinely does this, routinely uses what should be the people's resources to maintain its own hegemony, to maintain its 800 some odd um, military bases uh, across the globe that only protects the money of the war profiteers and doesn't keep really anyone safe. And of course they also got to encircle their enemies using these bases as well. And uh, so it, it, it just shows the lie that we've all been told about how this system is one that will protect us and we should look up to and respect this government and its military and all those sorts of things, because they are objectively a a force for good on the world stage. But in reality, 
I think what, you know, Martin Luther King said was accurate, Margaret, when he said that, you know, the U.S. is the greatest purveyor of violence on the world today. And I think that's as true now as it was then. Well, yes, you're absolutely right. I, I want to add a little context, though. You know, in that region, the goal of the U.S. with their uh, uh, project for a new American century, the goal is to get rid of the secular Arab government. So, um, uh, so for example, you attack Saddam Hussein, uh, Libya, Syria, and you, um, uh, of course, they love these um, uh, Persian Gulf monarch states, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Those are Americans' friends because they do what the U.S. wants. They're cozy with Israel. So any government that can be independent is one that is a danger to their scheme. Uh, and and that is why we're you know we're told about humanitarian interventions and responsibility to protect and lies about. Uh, I remember when they destroyed Libya, they claimed uh, uh, Gaddafi soldiers used Viagra to commit mass rape. I mean, it was it was crazy. But they said these things. And having said that, that is why I don't believe this version of events about this bombing. Uh, I don't know um, if you recall when uh, Reagan was attacking uh, Libya, uh, they were saying Gaddafi's evil, he's a terrorist, he's a terrorist, he's a terrorist. And then all of a sudden, what a coincidence, they said Libyans had planted a bomb in a nightclub in Germany and killed Americans. And I said to myself, why would they do that now? Same thing with um, uh, Assad in Syria. Uh, Assad is using chemical weapons. He's using chemical weapons, and then he would use chemical weapons. So, and and this is just very convenient. So, I think we have to be careful. We cannot take any of this for granted. We have to uh, always be cynical. Uh, so, I don't know who committed this bombing. They're telling us now it's uh, uh, ISIS K. I heard of ISIS-K. There could be an ISIS-K, but I don't know. And uh, given the history of this country, we would uh, do well to be skeptical uh, when we are told these things. So uh, I would add all of that to, um, to your good point. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Margaret Kimberly is here. And we have a caller on the line here, Mo, from the district. Tell us what's on your mind. I, I appreciate you guys taking my call. Uh, I don't like Margaret Kimberly. I love Margaret Kimberly. So I, I just want to establish that right off the, the bat. And uh, I couldn't help but watch today, uh, well, I saw uh, Democracy Now! And they had an Afghani journalist on. And like all these conversations from 
I don't know how what, what you call these people now, but Amy Goodman asked the journalist, well, I mean, what told the journalist about the escalation and some of the missteps by, by Trump. And I thought it was quite interesting because he immediately corrected her and said, you know, listen, this current administration is just as responsible as the previous administration, as U.S. policy. So, you know, I, I would like, I called in a few days ago, and I guess I didn't really get my question to answer, and Danny, Danny Haifong was, was on, but I believe and, I, and, and that we need to have a post-mortem on the presidency of Barack Obama, as well as uh, where we are as far as the Democratic Party and the black misleadership, black misleadership class and all of the above, to really evaluate their responsibility, where we are now, so we can move forward. So uh, if you guys could address that, I really appreciate it. And again, thanks for taking my call. And uh, God bless uh, the legacy of, of Glenn Ford. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mo. So good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, I mean, you're you're asking about a postmortem for the presidency of Barack Obama. I dare say blackagendareport.com is a postmortem on the presidency of Barack Obama all by itself. But uh, Margaret Kimberly, curious your response to our caller here. Uh, well, I thank you. I, I thank him for his uh, uh, kind uh, uh, words. But we need a postmortem, not just on these presidents. I, I wrote about Afghanistan last week in Black Agenda Report, and I found a photo of every president from Jimmy Carter to uh, uh, Barack Obama, because all of them played a role, all of them, in uh, destroying Afghanistan. So we need a postmortem on our political system. We need a postmortem on um, what it is that we're told. We're keep, we're, our choices are so, we're told, very narrow. You can't, you map the vote for Democrats no matter what. You can't criticize Biden even when it's obvious he's... Uh, um, uh, mess this up in any number of ways. So we have to have a postmortem on this system we have, which tells us, which propagandizes us into believing this is all we can have. We can't have anything else. You cannot think outside the box at all. The most you can get is someone who's progressive on domestic issues, but goes along with the party line on foreign policy. And even though they're progressive on domestic issues, when they get slapped around and told that they, you know, their initiatives won't ever see the light of day, we're supposed to accept that as well. So I would say we need a postmortem on the whole thing. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. And I, and I do, you know, want to respond to the caller and his comment about the black misleadership class, because honestly, it was Glenn Ford's writing in Black Agenda Report. I think that that hipped me to that term and the entire analysis uh, from uh, BAR and, and others connected and the authors connected with BR, BAR who helped deepen my understanding of just how useful the black misleadership class is in perpetuating this ideology that we're fighting so hard. And I mean, I, I'm wondering, you know, Margaret, how do you see especially in this particular moment where we've got Lloyd Austin, who is the secretary of defense, who Kamala Harris, vice president, 
uh, um, I, I never can remember the the lady's name who is the ambassador to Greenfield. Uh, yes, uh, you know they're all. We've had Susan Rice before, and and you know all these black faces in high places who you know clearly. For us, they're supposed to be representational of the progress that black folks have made. But even people who are outside of the imperialist vein of politics, when you do bring up the problems with Barack Obama's presidency, the problems with these folks, the thing they usually say, and this is from so-called, you know, black leaders who also may call themselves progressives. Well, they can only do so much because of the racist white people. In, in Congress or, you know, wh- wherever. I mean, wh- what do we do with that narrative that comes from the academic black misleadership class, the intellectual black misleadership class that aren't like high ranking officials in the government? Well, we have to, first of all, just reject what they say. I mean, let's, let's just start there and just call the BS BS. Um, but we're always told that, aren't we? We're told that by, you know, you can't criticize the progressives, the squad, whomever, they're doing the best they can do, which apparently is nothing at all or very little. Uh, so that's always what we're told. And as far as the black face in the high place, I maintain that uh, Colin Powell is the one and uh, Condi Rice paved the way for Obama being president. Because we were told, first of all, people, the public at large got used to the fact that black people could uh, join these, um, you know, the imperialist elite. And then we were told we had to defend these people. So, um, but that's always what we're going to get. And that filters down to members of Congress. Black people were, still are by and large, but were always the most left wing, always the part, the population least likely to accept. Um, these uh, uh, rationales for killing people, more likely to respect leaders that um, uh, the establishment told us uh, we should not like. But we have folded, unfortunately, too many of us folded our tents too. And we go along with this, with this okie doke. So members of uh, the black, um, the Congressional Black Caucus, who used to be very progressive, but that's before um, uh, the moneyed interest decided to control them the way they control the rest of Congress. And so now they are the same. And we can't expect to see anything different from them than uh, we do from anyone else. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like that only supports the point you made a moment ago, Margaret, about the postmortem really on the whole uh, system, as it were. And, you know, of course, you wrote, <clears throat> excuse me, wrote this book, uh, a presidential about black America and the presidents. And I mean, I feel like there's just sort of a clear uh, line of consistency that we can see from sort of the beginning of the U.S. presidency right up until today. Now, obviously, these men dealt with, uh, you know, uh, the, you know, issues facing their times and all these sorts of things. But ultimately, each and every last one of them was firmly dedicated to maintaining the United States as this white supremacist capitalist powerhouse of uh, a nation. Now, of course, it wasn't always that, but the whole trajectory of it from the beginning was for it to be what it is right now, just an out and out 
empire that wants to lay siege to uh, the rest of the world through what it may call full spectrum dominance, which we know is just world domination. You know what I mean? And that sounds diabolical because it is. And so, I mean, in the final analysis, what's clear is that we can never rely on this ruling class in this country or any country because every country has a ruling class um, to overthrow itself or reform itself. Now, it's true the state will make certain concessions oftentimes to keep out and out revolt at bay. But in terms of making the changes needed, that's only ever really happened as a result of pressure from the bottom. And for me, um, Margaret, that is something we have to always bear in mind. It's just the agency of the masses of poor working and oppressed people that we've always used to carry through this struggle to really fight this system that is really designed to crush us. Because we're not supposed to resist. We're just supposed to let ourselves be worked to death and to have, you know, the least amount of services with the least amount of money and the least amount of access to the most important things. And we're not supposed to even say a mumbling word. But when we see the ongoing uh, uh, war all across this globe and the ravages of that and the central role that the United States played in that, when we see the social crises happening right now in uh, this country as a result of, you know, the eviction moratorium and the pandemic and the unemployment issue and uh, all those sorts of things. It's just clear, I think, Jackie, that the development and organizing of a real movement against this system is what's needed. And, and it's not a coincidence, I think, that we often find ourselves right very back at this point, is that capitalism is essentially the issue. It is the issue at hand. Capitalism is the pandemic. You know what I mean? And since those who are in power are sworn to uphold and protect that system, then there has to be some outside power that challenges that system. You know what I mean? And so this is why we have to keep getting put into the trick bag of the two-party system. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's the same. We have the same conversations every single year because it's the, 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 the same trick that's being played. You know what I mean? And so for me, Jackie, it, it just seems that the more difficult things get, as more and more people get evicted, as more and more people continue to be kept from um, benefits and resources and things like that, even the benefits that are supposedly set aside, $46.5 billion for um, uh, emergency rental assistance. Like Margaret said earlier, 89% of it has not gone out. And so things will not get better if it continues in this way. You know what I mean, Jackie? And so as such, I think it's incumbent upon us to really get together and have the conversation, decide what we will do as a movement to really address these things. Yeah, I think that is absolutely true. And I mean, the 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 pandemic of capitalism is so dire that. Even across so-called party lines, people are doing wild things to address the pandemic of capitalism without realizing that's what they're doing. Like, I, I mean, I would love to laugh at the folks who are now turning to taking uh, what is this stuff called? Ivermectin? Yeah. A, a horse and sheep dewormer. 
in order to and 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 we understand that on on the on the right side of the spectrum this is also a capitalist money grab right it is it is the way the right preys on members of their political community by saying oh you can't trust you know these liberal institutions uh to protect you but here Here's something that that we have that is much better that they don't know anything about. And it's just a money grab for them. But these folks are just as much in the the trick bag as we are Mm. about, uh, you know, the fact that this system is not protecting you. They 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 recognize the system isn't protecting them, but they believe that the system is just the Democrats. Right. So, I mean, we've got people, Margaret, (laughs) literally taking animal medicine that you have to get at at you know an animal supply store well, believing that they're putting something over on this government that has not provided for them and they're they are missing because they are so indoctrinated into this two party trick bag like Sean said that they don't realize that they're still being subjected to the pandemic that is capitalism. It's just their right-wing leaders that are doing it. Well, you know, it's a funny thing, Jackie. It's, uh, it speaks to a larger delusion. All of these things we've been talking about create delusion in people um, so that there is an ivermectin. It's, it treats parasitic diseases, and it's uh, approved for humans. But uh, that people would use the form for animals, which humans are not supposed to take, who say they don't trust the, the government, they don't trust big pharma. But let me take this medicine meant for horses and cows. It speaks to the larger delusions in our society that are created by all of the dynamics that we have been uh discussing, uh, that people won't believe that a mask which covers, you know, your nose and mouth and uh, will not protect you and you won't protect other people when you cough and sneeze and they are acting actively arguing against a very basic safety measure. So that's the other thing that um, uh, this austerity has done, the propaganda has done. People literally cannot think for themselves and their thinking for themselves is based on delusion, is based on unreality. So there's a, a, a political and economic dimension to all of these things, but I, I believe this system is doing great damage to human beings as well. I think that's a fact, because what we're talking about are the psychological impacts of dealing with the contradictions of this system. And not only, you know, in terms of propaganda, but even what you'll do with your own body, because there's a gratification in thinking that, you know, you've got one over on the libs or whatever and things like that. I mean, I feel like I should highlight again how ridiculous it is that the um, pandemic itself is even as politicized as it is or things like masks and social distancing and and, and all those sorts of things. Um, You know, matter of fact, I saw there's this fool that I know down in Florida. And I actually saw a picture of him with a mask on that said wearing by force, not because of fear, because of mask mandates. And so it's like, dog, you're not getting kidnapped. We're just asking you to have like the barest concern for like other people that are around you and see. But again, they're so deeply manipulated by, you know, Ron DeSantis and all of that, 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 that this is the attitude. Although DeSantis is just one. 
He's just an individual. He's part of um, a whole class of politicians that quite literally mess with people's minds. And so there's no part of the human condition that goes untouched by this capitalist system. And as such, there can be no part of the capitalist system that we do not overturn in order to remedy these problems. But be that as it may, we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Margaret Kimberly, so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.